Reading from Angels in the ER, a book by Robert D. Leslie, medical doctor. Book review, chapter one, the nature of the beast. Scriptures, Psalm 23, four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Again, say that with me, say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalms 23, 4. Everyone in the department turned to the ambulance entrance. We all heard the screaming and shouting, especially the piercing wail of a young woman. Suddenly, the automatic doors burst open, and a crowd of 15 or 20 people, all teenagers, or maybe a little older, spilled into the ER. In the midst, they carried a young man, his arms and legs dangling wildly, and his head rolled from side to side. His T-shirt was soaked with blood. Somebody help! The cry came from someone near the front of the pack. Jimmy's been shot. We all move in the direction of the door. Jeff Ryan, the charge nurse, was the first to reach the wounded man. Follow me, he instructed the people carrying Jimmy, and don't drop him. He led the group towards the trauma room and called over his shoulder to the unit secretary. Get security. At the doorway, Jeff turned and took the bleeding boy into his arms and then carried him to, to the middle of the room. As he was carefully placing the young man on the stretcher, a few members of the crowd <clears throat> tentatively stepped into the trauma room. Nope. One word from Jeff stopped them in their tracks. You guys will need to wait outside. Few people questioned Ryan's authority. He was in his early 30s, stood six feet tall, and weighed about 225. He had been in the ER when I first came to Rock, Illinois, and I soon came to appreciate the fact that he was one of the finest nurses I would ever work with. He looked like a big teddy bear, but something in his eyes let you know that beneath that gentle exterior lurked a rugged strength and potentially explosive temper. I've seen it explode a few times, and woe to the person in his path. We refer to Jeff as our enforcer. Within a few minutes, Jimmy was completely undressed, lying on his back. He had an IV line in each arm, each rapidly infusing normal saline. A catheter had been inserted in his bladder and oxygen was being administered through nasal prongs held in place by an elastic strap encircling his head. Examining his abdomen for the second time, one bullet hole just above his belly button, this was an obvious entrance one and there was no exit. He had been awake and talking since we placed him on the stretcher. His vital signs had been fair at the outset with only mild depressive blood pressure. This had quickly improved within the IV fluids, and now things appear to be stabilized. The lab takes had come down, and they were now cross-matching blood for transfusion. We would give it as soon as it was available. The one-call surgeon, Sam Wright, had been notified. Fortunately, he was still in the hospital in the operating room, finishing up a case. A few minutes later, he was on the phone. Sam, this is Robert. I spoke into the receiver. 
I got a 19-year-old male here in the ER with a single gunshot wound to the abdomen. He's alert and his vital signs are stable, but there's no exit wound. The x-ray looks like the bullet lodged somewhere near his right kidney, and it looks like something small, maybe a 22. I was making a guess about the caliber, but in reality, it didn't make much of a difference. Get him ready for the OR, Sam replied through the speakerphone. Looks like we'll have to open him up and see what's going on. I'm closing up the appendectomy you gave me earlier, so I'll just meet him here in the operating room. Okay, we'll do that. He should have gotten about a unit of blood before you see him. Fine, then he was gone. Jeff was making some notes on our patient's clipboard. Dr. Wright, ready to see him on the OR, he asked me. Yeah, as soon as everything is in order, I answered. He picked up the board, stepped over to the side of the stretcher, and checked to be sure both IV lines were flowing. Then he headed for the door. I'll get some help, and we'll get him going, he told me as the door was closing. I looked down at Jimmy and asked, Are you sure there's nobody we need to call, family, relatives? He had already been asked this several times, and each time had told us that no one needed to be bothered. Little friends who had brought him to the ER were of no help either. Once Jimmy had been deposited into our trauma room, they had disappeared. Maybe they had heard Jeff's request security, or maybe they knew that a police squad would soon be on its way. Whatever the reason, they were gone. We were alone in the room, and I was waiting for the transport team to come. Doc, I'm not going to make it, he stated matter-of-factly. This blunt pronouncement surprised me. I glanced down at him, checked his color, and then over at the cardiac monitor to be sure I wasn't missing something. He seemed stable enough. Jimmy, you're going to be fine. I know this is no fun for you, but it's a straightforward wound, and Dr. Wright will get you fixed up. You may have nicked some intestines or something like that, but he'll patch things up, and you'll be going home in a few days. I didn't have to try to sound confident because I was. This would be a basic surgical procedure. Unfortunately, we saw too many cases like this. He would be fine. He was young and healthy. Now, peacefully and calm, he continued to stare straight up at the ceiling. His arms rested at his side, and a sheet was drawn up to his waist. He had a lot of tubes connected to him, but he was stable and looked good. No, man, he said, quietly resigned and still staring at the ceiling. I'm not going to make it out of this operation room. His tone and words bothered me. He needed to be encouraged. Jimmy... Before I could finish, the door opened and the two men of the transport team came into the room. They made the necessary preparations and began pushing the stretcher towards the door. I stood out of the way. Jimmy was halfway through the door when he twisted his head around and looked directly at me. Not going to make it, Doc. Everything's going to be fine, Jimmy, I told him once more, and then he was gone. Of course, I was right, and I would be able to tell him so in a few hours. I looked at the clock and the wall, 12.30 a.m. At 1 a.m., a 19-year-old girl hopped into the department and was led to room two by our triage nurse. She had stepped in a hole, which happens to be just outside one of our town's drinking establishments, and sprained her right ankle. It was pretty swollen, and we would need an x-ray to make sure it wasn't broken. 
We had no sooner sent her down the hall in a wheelchair to x-ray than the ambulance door swung open. EMS brought a 25-year-old woman directly to the cardiac room. She had a long-standing history of kidney disease and extremely high blood pressure. Tonight, she had apparently suffered a stroke. She was breathing but was not responding to pain or verbal stimulations. We will need a CT scan overhead and quickly. Within a few minutes, her stretcher was heading down the hall toward radiology. I sit at the nurse's station writing on the chart of these two patients. A busy evening was turning into a busy night. Suddenly, an unfamiliar voice bellowed behind me, almost in my ear. Where's my baby? Where's she be? Startled, I turned around and found myself nose-to-nose with a middle-aged woman. She was dressed in a blue and white striped bathrobe, barely held close with two large safety pins. A black silk nightgown could be seen extending below the bottom edge of the robe, almost sweeping the floor, and on her feet she wore bright red bedroom slippers, fashioned after some fuzzy, undefiable animal. But my eyes were drawn to her head. Her hair was in curlers, huge pink ones, held in place by something I couldn't quite make out. I looked a little closer and I recognized that it was a large pair of women panties. Where is Naomi? She asked no one in particular. Her friend, girlfriend, said she was over here. She began to look around the department, searching frantically for her daughter. She stepped toward one of the exam rooms and was about to pull the curtains aside when I was able to stop her. Ma'am, I'm Dr. Leslie. Come with me and we'll help you find your daughter. She stopped and looked at me, about to speak. Then she turned her head slightly to one side and looked over my shoulders, her eyes widely, hugely open. My baby, she screamed, pointing down the highway. What have you done to my baby? (laughs) She swept me aside with one large arm and ran down the hall, bumping into the counter. My baby, my baby, what have you done to her? She screamed. Our young stroke victim was returning from CT. She lay flat on the stretcher with unresponsive and was being rolled up the hall to her room. Look at her. You killed her, she was screaming even louder now. She borrowed through the radiology tech, brushing one side as she grabbed the girl's face in her hands. She's dead. You killed her. She's dead. There was an instance of silence. Her eyes rolled back in her head and her face turned to heaven. And then a piercing wail. Do Jesus help me, Lord. Do Jesus help me, Lord. Jeff was moving towards the woman. He would try to calm her and then lead her to a private room. This type of outburst was not unusual in the department, and though disconcerting, we had all grown accustomed to it. But this was all new to our other patients, and a few inquisitive heads peered from behind curtains, trying to get a glimpse of the scene. They didn't want to get too close, though. This woman was on fire. Who did this? Who killed my baby? Jeff walked to her side and quietly said, Ma'am, she's not dead. We're taking good care of her. He patted her gently on her shoulder. She would have none of this and jerked away from his hand. I want to know who did this. Her voice was becoming menacing. Then she looked directly at me and took a step in my direction. She pointed a threatening finger at me and said, 
I'm going to sue you. I'm going to own this hospital, and you're going to be sorry. There follows some choice descriptive of my heritage, and then she turned again to the young woman, patting her on the forehead. Once more, she lovingly took the girl's head in her hands. Baby, what they done to you? What they done to you? I'm going to... She stopped in mid-sentence and froze where she stood. Then her head tilted from side to side as she studied the face of the girl lying before her. A puzzled look began to spread across her face, and her eyes began to widen in surprise. Suddenly, she was distracted by a movement further up the hallway and looked up. It was our ankle injury patient. She was returning to the ER in a wheelchair, her x-rays in her lap. Our distraught mother stood straight up, dropping the young woman's head back on the stretcher. There's my baby. She ran up the highway, smiling in relief, her arms extended before her. The safety pins that had been barely holding her bathrobe together had finally given up, and the row flew open, flapping wildly at her sides as she ran. When she got to the wheelchair, she knelt and embraced her daughter. She hugged her tightly, rocking her back and forth. You all right, honey, baby? You okay? There was nothing to say or do. We just stood there. It was 4.30 a.m. and I was beginning to flag a little. One more cup of coffee and I might live to see the sunrise. I was turning to walk towards the lounge when I saw Sam Wright coming up the highway. He still wore his surgical cap and scrubs. They were soaked with perspiration and I noticed splashes of blood from his knees down to his shoe covers. He collapsed into one of the chairs behind the nurse's station's pulled off his scrub cap and tossed it in a nearby trash can. Man, that was tough, he said, shaking his head. I walked over and sat down beside him. He was talking about Jimmy. What did you find, Sam? I asked. We got him to the OR and onto the table. As soon as we put him to sleep, his pressure started to fall. Not much at first, but then it really crashed. When I opened him up, there was blood everywhere. I tried to cross-clamp the aorta, to even begin to see what was going on. The bleeding was coming from a place I couldn't get to, and I never completely control of it, never got it. He paused and looked up at me, shaking his head. Then he continued, the bullet nicked the side of the aorta and then lost just behind the kidney. It didn't hit anything else. Amazing, the nick must have immediately clogged off, and he didn't do much bleeding. Not until he got to the OR. The clot came off and everything broke loose. Eight units of blood, as fast as we could get the blood into him, it was on the floor. We tried everything. We worked. He, he paused looking at his wrist rush. We worked on him for three and a half hours. He stooped and his shoulders slumped forward. He stared unseasonally at the floor. This is a tough one, Robert. I don't know what else I could have done. We sat there sighting, and Jeff came up the hall with two cups of black coffee and set the streaming styrofoam cups on the counter. <clears throat> Neither of us moved. And you were right, Sam spoke again. It was a small caliber bullet, 22, I think. The ER and Rock Hill and the rest of the world moved on around us, and I thought of the last words Jimmy has spoken to me. The ER, it all happened here. 
This is an amazing place to observe and study the human condition. We see and experience every feeling and emotion and do so in an intense and highly charged environment. Gone are the trappings of proper decorum and behavior. Gone are the concerns about what others may be thinking about us. Where else would you see a 50-year-old banker walking down the hallway in a hospital gown, uncaring that his diarrhea was exposed to a bunch of strangers? But in reality, we are all undressed in the ER, all of us. Our strengths and weaknesses are openly and sometimes uncomfortably exposed. This is true for patients and physicians alike. As caregivers, whether nurse or doctor, orderly or secretary, we quickly learn the limits of our willingness and ability to empathize, to sacrifice, and to step outside of ourselves. It is possible to remain aloof, distant, and shielded, but it comes with a price. Ultimately, the ER is a place where the fate of each one of us will be tested. Our belief will be tempered and refined or exposed and discarded as worthless. Here we can learn who we are and on what grounds we stand. And sometimes it is a place where our faith can be found. These pages tell the story of people who have traveled into this dark valley. Through their experience and struggles, we can search our own hearts for answers to finding grace and peace in the darkness. Amen. Story from the Angels in the ER by Dr. Leslie M.D. This book was written in 2008. Robert Leslie, medical doctor, he goes on to say, Angels in our midst. 25 years in the ER have taught me a lot of things. I know without a doubt that life is is very fragile. I have come to understand that humility may be the greatest virtue. And I am convinced we need to take the time to say the things we deeply feel to the people we deeply care about. I have also come to believe that there are angels in our midst. They may take the form of a friend, a nurse, or a complete stranger. And on occasion, they remain unseen, a subtle yet real presence that instructs, comforts, and protects us. The ER is a difficult and challenging place to be both for patients and for those of us who care for them. Yet the same pressures and stresses that make this place so challenging also provide an opportunity to experience some of life's greatest wonders and mysteries. It is with a sincere appreciation of these mysterious and a profound sense of privilege that I offer some of my thoughts and experiences in these pages. Robert Leslie, M.D.